Hello, I'm Simon Rimmer and this is Grilling, a podcast brought to you in association with Weber Barbecues, in which I grill top chefs about their passion for cooking. Now, I'm going to take our guests back to where it all began and explore the pivotal moments of their career, what's gone right, what's gone wrong, and all the bits in between. And we also will explore the practical side of things too, as well as saving up a few basic tips for the kitchen. We'll be heading outdoors to find out how to get great flavours from your barbecue this winter, on which note, we're giving away a state-of-the-art Weber Barbecue in every single episode oh yeah today it's the turn of a good friend of mine paul ainsworth now paul cut his teeth under the late gary Rhodes before working for gordon ramsay and then later marcus Waring. in 2006 he and two friends opened a restaurant which he and his wife emma now own completely and run themselves paul at number six in padstow was awarded a mission start in 2013 and also I've always figured that I am the nicest man in food and food TV in particular, but it's actually Paul Ainsworth who is the nicest man. You are the nicest gentleman ever, Mr. Ainsworth. Welcome to Grilling. How are you, my friend? I am very, very well. And you know what? I've been really looking forward to this. Oh, bless you. Because I love coming on Sunday brunch with you. You always make me feel very, very welcome. And uh, yeah, you're just easy to be around, Simon. Oh bless you! Let's now after our mutual backstabbing. So let, let's let's go to the important bits, really, because I think one of the things about it is your background is is hospitality. You, you were you were doomed, if you like, to be in hospitality. You know, your parents ran a B and B, but also your your mum's background is interesting too. Yes. So my dad is Lancastrian. He was born in a, a place called Ponton the Fylde near Notend on Sea in Blackpool. And my mum is from the Seychelles. So two hugely contrasting cultures. Uh, And my dad was working in the Middle East in the 70s. And then he got a position. He'd never heard of Seychelles. Didn't have a clue where it was. Luckily, there was uh, some friends of my gran and granddad's around who were um, a guy called Fred who was in the Navy. And he was like, look, we've just come back from there. It's heaven on earth. You've got to go. And was there a month, walked into Barclays International to post some money back home to my grandparents and met my mum. And the reason I've told you that story is because that's why we've called the cookery school and the chef's table Mahe. So my mum was born on the island of Mahe, which is the largest island in the Seychelles. And Emma, my wife, said when we were looking for a name, a cookery school, you're teaching people the very beginning, the raw materials and how to turn them into something. And same with the chef's table, you watch you watch everything unfold in front of you from the beginning. So, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of my sort of heritage. I've quite often wondered what your mum must have thought, being from such a beautiful place as Seychelles and not being routinely filed, but then suddenly you find yourself in a rainy <laughs> Lancaster coastal town. She must have thought, I do love this bloke, but I'm not quite sure whether this is going to last. <laughs> yeah, but it gets better. So my dad was my dad was always very sort of driven, very, you know, very ambitious. And he wanted to set up a and b So my mum had been, as you say, in kind of rainy England for three months. You've got to bear in mind, she'd never kind of been to the UK, never really gone out of Seychelles, came to England. And my dad then went to the Middle East and worked in Dubai for nine months straight. So she's living with my grand and granddad who she's never met. Um, so, yeah. Dedication. Wow. I mean, that, that change in culture must be hard. One of my best mates, he married a girl from Hawaii and she had never in all of her life, and they, they met in Hong Kong who was working there, in all of her life she had never witnessed or, or been in temperatures below 20 degrees Celsius and he's from the Scottish <laughs> borders. So the first time she came over, they came over for Christmas and it was minus 12 in the Scottish borders. And we went up to sort of visit them at my, my friend Martin's mum and dad's house. And he walked in and it was like going into a furnace. They had all the fires on, all the central heat on, because she, she couldn't process it. And, you, you're, you know, your mum must have had a similar thing where you sort of go, I, I can't process this wet. I can't process this kind of cold. Yeah, absolutely. Mid-70s England, you know, coming over. Um, so, yeah, drastic change. So when you were growing up then, I assume, as with all kind of great family businesses and hospitality, you were peeling spuds from as young as you could hold a peeler. Yeah. You know, I know sometimes when you hear these stories, you're like, oh, yeah, you know, but it, it really was. And I think that's what set me, set me in good stead, Simon, for, for hospitality. I was working hard. And some people now, they don't believe it, but I, I was. My dad had me working hard from an early age. It was a family business. By the time I was like 10 years old, I was like doing everything around the house. Then when I was allowed out, 
I always remember at one, like at one point, and this was my next sort of step into sort of hospitality outside of my family business. Just to, so this makes sense, I didn't grow up in Lancashire. My mum and dad were in Southampton in Hampshire because uh, my grand and granddad moved down um, in, the, in the 60s. So I actually grew up in Southampton. But yeah, I had uh, the evening echo, the morning papers. I did the Sunday papers and the Saturday papers. Then the paper shop offered me to do the inserts, so to put all of the uh, inserts into the Times, the Telegraph, and so on. I was working five nights at a fruit and veg merchant, and then wow. I thought I'd cut my teeth at Betterware. So I was that lad that would deliver this um, catalogue to your house, and you would look <laughs> through it and think, do you know what? Actually, we do need a place to put all our shower gels and razors, and we can just stick it to the wall in the shower, right? And what, so you right. order it with me. Well, never mind all this catering stuff. What was, the, what was the biggest seller then, back then? It was either this thing we sold that you could put all your stuff that you have in the shower in this thing that you know those sucker pods that you put on, the, on, your, on your shower. Yeah, yeah. Or... It was the um, veg tray in the kitchen. So it was like a wheelie, like mobile veg unit that you could put all your carrots and onions in. And just in your house now then, Paul, what, what kind of shower caddy have you got? Uh, no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, yeah, I, well, put it this I've not got one of those. Of it. it's, it's a bit more chrome looking and it's kind of... I've got a chrome one. Have you got a chrome one? Yeah, and it's, it's on a right, it kind of goes into the corner on the right angle. Okay, well, I've got I've got a straight one because the the corner one because I'm a little bit kind of I'm a little bit retentive in the fact that I like things to be in a straight line. But um, I've just I've genuinely just bought a new one about a month ago because the one I had previously wasn't a chrome one. And once you kind of get the water on, it starts to get a little bit rusty. Then it was dripping on the uh, onto the tiles. I've got like an open shower. Oh, it just didn't work, Paul. So I needed a better wear salesman, really, to kind of come around and, and flog me something really good. If only I'd known, Paul, I would have found you for advice when I was looking for one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I had, I, had, I had all these jobs on the, I had all these jobs on the go and I was working for my, you know, working for my dad. So, you know, like I was, I was really fortunate like that, Simon. I had this work ethic instilled into me. I was taught at a very early age that, you know, if you wanted anything in life, if I wanted those brand new Nike Air Max trainers, you know, or a Sega Game Gear or whatever, yeah. at that time, I had to earn it. And that then set me in good stead for going into hospitality full time. And that all began at a hotel in Southampton. I got a job there through work experience at school. How old were you then, Paul? I was uh, 15. Okay. And that was my plan. I said to I said to my dad, I was like, look, I'm going to really try and get a job here. And Simon, I chose four of the most random things at school because I still didn't know what I really wanted to be. I chose champion sport, blacks camping and leisure, a roadside services on the M27 called Roundham Services and the Star Hotel. Right. And I got the Star Hotel and I said to my dad, I said, I'm going to really try and get a job here, give up the paper rounds, give up better wear, give up the fruit and veg merchants and just focus on one job. Sure enough, they offered me a job, £2.50 an hour. And it was a privately owned hotel by the most immaculate woman you've ever seen in the world. She was like, she was just like a Peggy Mitchell. She came in immaculate. Wow. She owned the hotel. She would just work the bar at lunchtimes. And uh, after about two or three days, she was like, Paul, whenever I walk in here, it smells of, it just smells lovely and polished. So I was still doing a good job, but I would be spraying, right? I would literally be (laughs) lagging the whole place in um, Mr. Muscle, the furniture polish. (laughs) And Brasso in everywhere. And they offered me a job. So was that in the kitchen, Paul? No. They offered me a job as general assistant. So I used to go in. I was still at school. I would go there every weekend, Saturday, Sunday. I suppose that was my first taste, Simon, of like, I'll never forget this moment of going across Cobden Bridge in Southampton on the 3A bus and seeing my mates skating. We were big into ice hockey, roller hockey, and seeing my mates still having fun skating across the bridge. (laughs) Yeah. And I looked out the window at them and I look back at that now and that kind of was like the first moment of like, oh yeah, this is the career like I'm going into. So I was at school all week and then I would go to the Star Hotel on the weekends and work. Um, and then I left school and then that was when I sort of really decided I wanted to be a chef. So when you, when you decided you wanted to be a chef, because obviously there are, there are differing levels. At that stage, did you have 
an idea of what kind of chef? Or was it just the, the love of the profession itself that you thought, you know what, this is what I want to do? I don't quite know which part of it because I don't really know all of it yet. I just want to get involved. I want to make food. Great question. And as you know, at that time, food was not... What year are we now, Paul? Nowhere near. So we are 19... We are 1996. Okay, right. Yeah, sorry, not, yeah, 97, yeah, 96, 97. And I told my dad I wanted to be a chef and his actual reaction was, really? Because we (laughs) didn't go out. We didn't go out to restaurants, Simon. Like if we were celebrating as a family, we used to go to this restaurant called Around the World. It was a beef eater um, on the pit. And that was where we went. That was a family treat. We, I wasn't sort of brought up in, going to fancy restaurants so i don't have that story of you know the family we'd go to france and eat in a you know a one mission restaurant or my grandmother would you know sit me on her lap and we'd pick tomatoes together and make jams and chutneys i I just (laughs) i just came from a very working class kind of background and then he then he said this was his exact words chefs are manky gits (laughs) (laughs) How true. Now, there's the best yeah. piece of advice anybody ever gave their son, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And, and, I, and I do remember we used to sit in this beef eater. Sometimes you see the chef dash past the slot machine, absolutely caked in food and everything <laughs> like that and stuff. And um, and then he said, OK, he said, well, look, if that's what you want to do. He, and I, the only sort of advice I, like, I, I kind of thought, OK, that makes sense, was he was like, you're going to do it do it at the do it at the highest level but at that point i still didn't know what that meant i was nowhere near that point and i suppose fast forwarding where i really understood that was when i joined royal hospital road and obviously before that working for gary was i knew i was i was really working at a really really high level but it was kind of gordon gave it clarity i'd been there two weeks uh, absolutely petrified and uh, as you are working in an environment like that and then the detail and standard was phenomenal before we jump onto gordon i want the middle bit right so i've got you starting at the star hotel so yeah where where is the bit in between where's the kind of you know is the catering college involved you know do you go from being a, yeah. a, a 16 year old general assistant we're missing that crucial bit in your life, Paul Ainsworth, which makes me think you probably got kicked out of college for being a for being at a wrong un, and uh, then you just just by chance you kind of bribed Gary Rhodes to give you a job. So our, our listeners are thinking, yeah, he's clearly a wrong un, that Paul Ainsworth. So fill in that gap for us before we all make assumptions about your 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 shady past, Ainsworth. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, <laughs> so I got I got kicked out of Southampton City College for like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, no, I so I I got into college and I was the guy that was working at college and soon as college had finished, I go straight to the Star Hotel and do service. Yeah. I'd also do breakfast and I was doing this seven days a week. Every single day for college, I was late. But I had to take the rollicking. Why, why are you late? What, you know, and it was, it was, I'll never forget the lecture. His name was John Flew. And he used to rollick me for like, <laughs> you, can't you get your ass out of bed earlier? If you, if you can be 10, 15 minutes late, why can't you be 10, 15 minutes earlier? Little did he know I'd been up at five doing breakfast. Wow. But they didn't encourage that at the college. I was going to say, because back then, it was really frowned upon, wasn't it? If you, if you were a catering student, it's like, we'll teach you what you need to know. Don't go and work for somebody because we want you to come out knowing what we know and, and how things have changed with colleges now. So, yeah, so, okay, so, so, so yeah, we're keeping that a secret. I always wanted to be earning money. As much as I wanted to be learning, I wanted to be earning money. Yeah. So the good thing about it was the chef at the Star Hotel, his best friend turned out to be my college tutor who actually kind of marked me in because he knew that I was learning and he knew it was a good thing that I was working really, really hard. So after year one of college, if you had above 80% attendance, you went on the end of year trip and it was to Euro Disney. And when I rocked up on that bus, honestly, <laughs> that, that John Flew's face, he, he was like, what on earth are you doing here? How are you here? <laughs> And it's because Freddie, the chef, had been marking me in because he knew that I was working. But not very funny, Paul. What kind of trip's that for a load of catering students? <laughs> well, I know. I know. We did stop off at a champagne house. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> what a bizarre trip. 
so from there I went to uh, I went to a hotel in the New Forest called Carey's Manor. Mm-hmm. So then I was working. So Carey's Manor was definitely a step up. It was a two rosette hotel. Worked for two great chefs there, uh, chaps called Kevin and Graham. Still at college, and I suppose my my proper big break came. Uh, I had an amazing college lecturer now by now called Martin Nash, and like you could just tell that he had worked in the industry at a great level. And he was the godfather to Gary Rhodes' children. Wow. So him and Gary studied together at Fanet College. I was doing MVQ level three. I was coming near to the end. They did an in-house competition, student chef of the year. I entered it. I won it. Around that time, Paul, so when you were at college, and again, I know you've, you're very sort of self-effacing, but you must have been the star student there. You know, I, you know, I know you're not very good at kind of taking compliments, but, you know, you must have known that, you were the boy that everybody had to beat, if if you want a better expression. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. You know me very well, so I, I do sort of struggle to um, talk about that. I suppose the best way I could say it is that to add a little bit of, you know, um, humbleness into it, you know, you would... I had a reputation at, like, at college that, like, when it came to the washing up and all of that, <laughs> I was nowhere to be seen. <laughs> I just strived for the cooking. Yeah. And at that time at college, they would send you around the college. So some of it was okay. But when you were in like student canteen, the deanery and all of those areas, it was just that I had, I switched off. Uh But when it came to college restaurant and fine dining club and evening restaurant, I just was on the stove. And yeah, I, I, I knew that. I had such a head start on everyone else, Simon, because I was also working in the industry. Something, something, something that, again, I'm sort of leaping around a little bit on this because I love that. I don't know about you, but every now and again, when you recruit chefs for your team, you'll get somebody who comes out of college. He was, he was at college and they come and see you and you see that in them, don't you? There's, there's something about you go, wow, I, I, see, I see me and you. I see that hunger that you've got. You know, I, I see everything that you want it to be. Have you recruited a Paul Ainsworth over the years? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. And you're right. You know when they, you know when they're there. And I, and I know that you all agree with this, whether this is kind of mumbo jumbo, and I'm not even saying there's an exact science to it, but there's two things for me that I always seem to make a brilliant, hardworking human being. And they always had a paper round and they always started as a kitchen porter. Always, 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 always. I think that is absolutely true. Funnily enough, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine the other day saying that I think that one of the great things that I think young people should do is do some shifts as a kitchen porter in a good restaurant, not one where they're, where they're not looked after, where they're appreciating, they see what hard work is. I, I really, really do believe that. I think it's because it's such an incredible grounding for, for a human being and you learn so much. Yeah. You do, and and then, and then I go back a touch further, and I go like, "Did you have a paper round?" Yeah, yeah. I have a paper <laughs> <round>. <laughs> All right, so okay, so so we so let's let's go back to where we were. So so we're now yeah. that you're there, you're coming to the end of kind of college. You've got your job in the in the next stage, and then your tutor stroke mentor is also the uh, godfather to Gary Rhodes' kids. Yeah. So Gary, so I've won this competition, and then literally about a few weeks later. Gary uh, obviously rings the college um, and get called into this meeting room. There's three of us. There was a guy called Neil McKinnon, Paul Randall and myself. And he said, Gary Rhodes is opening a a brand new restaurant in London in Dolphin Square, Pimlico called Rhodes in the Square. And he's looking for chefs. And I was like, this is it. This is the brand. The moment the words left his mouth, I knew I was on my way. I was on my bike. Here we go. Sure, sure, you know, with, you know, with my dad, he was always there to support me, you know, and my mum, but like, you know, he wasn't going to make it easy for me. So in terms of accommodation, that was the biggest sticking point with London. Mm. So before we get to that point, we drive up and I am absolutely petrified. I'm so nervous, even though I've got two other lads with me and we walk into the kitchen and to this day, Gary Rose is the first famous person I ever met in my life. (laughs) And I remember it so vividly. And the thing that like blew me away was the hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, the, the sort of Gary Rhodes, you know, later on, it calmed right down. As a work of art. It's a work of art, wasn't it? It was like literally like a, like a lemon meringue pie. It was, like, <laughs> it was incredible. And you, so it was like, you're going, you know you're going to this top kitchen, but also he's a proper celebrity. I'd never met anyone famous. He was the first person. 
and he was phenomenal. He put us up in the hotel for three months until we saved up enough money to um, find digs. Wow. Did you get a job straight away, Paul, or did you go in knowing that the job was there? Went in knowing that the job was there. You know, we knew it was kind of apprentice commie um, role. I, I knew, like, the thing with me, Simon, was if he, had, if he had told me I was washing up, if he had told me I was going to sweep the floor for 18 hours a day, I couldn't care less. Yeah. All I wanted to do was get, get into London. Back then as well, London was where it was at. The only, ho- the only places I knew of note outside of London was Witteringham Fields, Gidley Park and Le Manoir. Yeah. Everything else was in London. And I was like, I was kind of like young and I wanted to sort of get into London. Yeah. I sort of started there and it was, it blew me away. Because so- I'd seen, I'd been at the Star Hotel. I'd been at Kerry's Manor. I'd done college. Now all of a sudden I was, and here's something that you, you'll, you'll appreciate. At this point, I didn't know what went with what. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah. when I got to Gary Rose, after a while, I started to understand why thyme and rosemary and garlic was such a huge part of everything. The layers uh-huh. when we were building the, the sauce making that like, actually, when you put a dish together, I always thought like the garnish was just something that was colorful yeah. and was just to make the dish look pretty. But when I got to Gary Rose, the garnish actually was it wasn't really garnish. It was like it was a marriage of ingredients. Yeah, I will never forget that. And. The biggest thing with Gary Rhodes was seven months in, it was blowing my mind, like the things I was seeing, but there was this bread and butter pudding that he would have uh-huh. lunch and dinner. And it was almost like acceptance. Like after about seven months, pastry chef called me over and said, would you like to try this? And I'd never tried real wow. proper vanilla. Yeah, yeah. And so Gary Rhodes' bread and butter pudding is, is amazing because you don't build up the bread whisk up the eggs and milk and cream, pour it over and bake it, and then get this kind of stodgy mess. You make a traditional custard, anglaise, and then you, so you've already done most of the cooking, pour it over, let it like set overnight, and then you cook it like a creme brulee. So you've just got this incredible consistency. It's like a cross between a creme brulee and a, and a bread and butter pudding. Uh, and then you glaze the top twice. So you've got the bitterness from the sugar, and I honestly, I put it in my mouth and I was like, oh, you could have knocked me over. I was like, <laughs> what the hell is that that I've just tasted? It was phenomenal. Wow. And there, you know, I remember I've got quite a good memory and I remember moments, feelings of how I felt of like exploring and becoming a chef. And like, this is incredible. I've never seen or use ingredients like this it's funny because genuinely it's kind of your description is kind of giving me goosebumps and and listeners i wish you could see paul's face because honestly you need to find somebody who looks to you the way that paul ainsworth looks at this memory of <laughs> gary Rose's bread and butter pudding because that that is a look of love you paint a picture for me of, of of the kitchen at that time paul how many people what what were you sort of doing on a in those early days on a day-to-day basis how, how did your day work out so I uh, quickly, the, the two lads I went up with, they they were gone after about two months. Why? Just didn't hack it. Just right. went back to Southampton, didn't like it. So then all of a sudden you're on your own and London can be quite a lonely place, you know, like yeah. on your own. And I made I made friends up there quick. And I loved it. I went straight into the way of life in London. I loved everything about it. I loved the mates, um, you know, that I made and the camaraderie. And I was just soaking up every moment. I started on prepping not even on a section I then kept my head down and a great sort of story for you is I I started to get on the sections so I like smashed in larder then I made my way over to veg did all of that then I got onto sauce section and I was literally on the sauce cooking the sauce at this point I'm still a commie I went into the office to speak to Gary's right hand man and I said uh, I was absolutely shaking Knock the door, sit down, Paul. And he was an ass kicker. His name was Wayne Tapsfield. <laughs> and uh, I sit there. That is a technical office, term, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And, and it, yeah. And he went, he went, yes, Paul. I, and, and Simon, it wasn't about the money. I couldn't give a shite about the money. I just wanted that. All I wanted was a title. And so, do you know what I was asking for? Demi. Right. I wasn't even asking for chef to party. Right. I've done all the sections. I'm cooking the fish and meat, which was the premier section. So I went, um, I went, Wayne, and I'm stuttering. He went, come on, Paul, spit it out. And I was like, um, I was just like, you know, do you think that I'm like ready for like Demi Chef the party? Bearing in mind what I'm doing, I'm like, <laughs> probably. And he went, he just looked at me and he went, 
How much was the car delivered this morning? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, Wayne. Chef. Uh, okay. How much was the, uh, how much was the sirloin of beef? I don't know. So he started to go through the invoices with wow. me. <laughs> and, wow. uh, and I went, I don't know. He went, a good Demi chef the party would know how much the <laughs> is, would know how much the sirloin. Yes, yes, chef. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll do better than that. And I'm like, so I'm naive and don't, you know, don't understand <laughs> actually head chef stuff. <laughs> like, head stuff. But yeah, I, and, and, and I suppose, I suppose I'm glad I was like that because all I wanted to do was just impress, succeed and, and, and cook it was never I was never interested in money I was never interested in anything else other than just trying to prove myself how many hours were you working uh we were seven o'clock in the morning and we would get out about half past 10 11 o'clock we would make just make last orders at a bar up the road <laughs> called Gordon, right and then obviously which I know you're going to come on to uh Gordon I'm thinking, Christ, yeah, we're working, we're working long hours here. Yeah. Royal Hospital Road went up another level. Okay, so so how did that happen? So how, how long are you with Gary for? Three years? I was with Gary for two years. Uh, and then Gordon, no one, no one knew who Gordon was. You only knew who Gordon was if you were in the industry. And I was sat and I was coming to the end. I thought, right, I'm ready to move on. And at the time, Simon, as well, London was, you know, Three free mission star restaurants, Nicola Dennis on Park Lane, Pierre Kaufman at Royal Hospital Road, and Marco Pierre White at the Oak Room, plus all the other incredible restaurants. And I don't know, there was something about Gordon, and Gordon was two star at this stage. I just wanted to sort of go and work for Gordon. Uh, you met Gordon before you went there? No. Yeah, this is what I'm coming to. So we're sat in the pub in Pimlico at the tube station, and I don't see it, but like this silver golf, like GTI, pulls up. And uh, to make a call in a phone box, and uh, one of all the boys, because you all knew who Gordon was in the industry, one of the boys goes, "Ask oh, Gordon Ramsay," and I, they were like, "Go on," because they all knew I wanted to go work for Gordon. So I stood outside the red phone box in Pimlico. <laughs> he's finished the call, and he came out, and he was like, "He was like, hello," and I was like, "Hi," um, you know, I was all over the place, couldn't get my words out. <laughs> it was like, uh, you know, and I knew of Gordon's reputation, uh, and I said, "Look, I'd like to, you know, come and come and sort of work for you." And he said, "Okay." Like, and he gave me the phone number. He said, phone this, ask for Mark Askew. And he said, and we'll go from there. So I did. Um, and I went along. And honestly, Simon, I cannot tell you. I was 21 years old. Uh -huh. And it was, it was winter time. I always remember it. It was at Christmas. It was pitch black in the morning. I got there at half past six. And walking through those doors, it was just a kitchen it was like SAS and wow. I don't know why I, people seem younger in kitchens now. It just, to me at 21 years old, it just looked like men. That, that's, a, that's a really good picture. I kind of get that. You, you know, it's very filmic that Paul. I like it. Okay. So go on. So, so little Paul, little Paul, the boy is there with a load of men. Yeah. So I come in and I'm like, and then, and then this lad comes through is, and he, uh, who I learned later on to be Addy and he's looked at me and went, yeah. <laughs> and I just was like, uh, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm here to, uh, I'm here to sort of do a day. He went, yeah, downstairs. I actually went downstairs under the road, put my, uh, put my jacket up, went upstairs. Like, where do I start? Like, I, I don't even know how I spoke. I don't even know how I picked up a knife. <laughs> I, the nerves were horrific. And then, like, about, I'd been there about an hour, an hour and a half, and then I knew straight away what kind of environment this is. This was nothing like. Don't get me. Gary Rhodes was fantastic and it was brilliant, and the standard the standard was phenomenal. But this was we we had the radio on. We were chatting amongst ourselves yeah. while we were prepping. This was a team of literally like commando operatives, like like wow. just like the most incredible soldiers, just all working methodically in silence, like nothing. And it was just. It was unbelievable. And then how, when how intimidating was that uh, for somebody who'd been working at a high level to then go and, and be in an environment that was clearly sort of quite oh, oppressive for want of a better expression. It must have been quite daunting when you're standing there thinking, I don't know what on earth is going on here. No. And and once I and so moving forward, I got offered the job. Um, I started in the January. And what became clear, and that just shows the the, the level. Like I say, we, you know, we were we were working at a brilliant level at Gary Rhodes. 
And I got there and I quickly realized that like everything I had learned with Gary, I had to put into a box and just put that back into the back of my head for a while. Wow. Because now I had to learn the Gordon Ramsay way. And actually I'd probably kind of progressed through the ranks quite quickly at Gary Rhodes. And then when I got to Gordon's, it really slowed me down because I wasn't as good as I thought I was because so much more was questioned. So like I'm picking Chervil, Chervil, and I'm like, and spinach, and I'm getting rollicked all over the place because I've, I've not washed it properly and it's still got a bit of sand in it and I haven't washed the spinach properly. And it's not sort of being derogatory to anything that I've done before that, but yeah. here you were at a level, Simon, where everything was questioned and questioned and it was this pursuit of perfection. And honestly, like I like, like, I was like, sign me up. Like, as hard as it is, <laughs> as scary as this is, sign me up. Like, I am, like, I, I want this. And then Mark Sargent, as we all know, Mark Sargent, a very young Mark Sargent, I always remember looking over at him. And up until this point, I'd learned to open scallops with a old restaurant knife. You know, when you're in there and you're messing around and trying to get hinge them open and that. And there's Mark Sargent with a boning knife, scallop in the hand, bam, straight in, twist, straight down. The most incredible scallop coming out, all the lines on it. But he's like opening these scallops in like two seconds. Wow. And I'm just looking at it and I'm like, back to that bread and butter pudding memory at Gary Rose. I'm, I'm still on the past. Up until this point, Simon, the only type of sea bass that I thought existed was like those kind of farm sea bass fillets. Yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, I'm looking at like a 200 gram square of sea bass sat on some beautiful yellow crushed potatoes with a caviar sauce. And I, like it was it was surreal. It was almost like I'd seen it was almost like I'd like landed in Jurassic Park and seen a T-Rex. <laughs> like I'd like I'd not seen produce like this. I, I didn't know sea bass was like an inch thick, perfectly square. And and then watching pasta being made and raviolis and tortellinis and it was mind-blowing how long then from starting with with gordon did you hit the point where you were i don't know happy with what you were doing progressing how long did it take to kind of get to be a gordon ramsay boy do you think nearly a year right and there was so many times where i come close to being i'm not good enough i can't do this and I always said to my parents, because again, no one knew what Gordon was at this point unless you were in the industry. And bless my mum. My mum was like, Gary Rhodes is this massive personality. He's this big celebrity chef. It's him, it's Delia, it's Anthony Wild Thompson. And it's, it's like, as far as my mum was concerned, I've made it. What, yeah. why, why, why do you want to go anywhere else? And my dad was like, listen, he knows what he's doing. Let him, let him get on with it. Because I said to my parents, listen, I'm going to work for a guy that is known to be very, very strict and a real disciplinarian. And there's a good chance I could get sacked. But I always said to myself, the only way I'll get sacked is if they physically throw me out. I will take whatever <laughs> they throw at me. Again, like I said to you, of sort of having quite a good memory, I, I was literally chopping away and it just dawned on me, I'm not getting bollocked as much. <laughs> it was literally that, I was like, I've actually got quite a good relationship with Mark. Like Mark Askew, the head chef, was phenomenal. Like, yeah. like there were some points I was used to be so tired, I'd look at him and think, if I just cut your arm, would it be like, would there be metal in there? You know, like that, you know, like on Terminator, and he proves that he's Terminator, and he, he holds his arm like that. And he just, you're, you're very descriptive. You're very descriptive, Paul. I love it. He just puts the knife down to show that he's like, he, he is a robot. <laughs> Because I just didn't know how someone could be so incredible and, and so intense. And he just never, he, there was no let up with Mark Askey. He was just the most unbelievable head chef. And yeah, it was, it was, it was about a year. And I just thought, I'm not getting bollocked as much. And that was, that was, that was my kind of like, yeah, I'm getting on and I'm moving around and, yeah, and then uh, yeah, and then like I say, I progressed through the kitchen to finally get to sauce section. And do you know what? Do you know when you knew you'd made it? Yeah. So when you got onto sauce section, yeah, guy cooking fish for me, and the guy next to you 
finishing all the sauces. It was immaculate. You had all these stunning copper pans, yeah. little whisks in there, and touch of vinegar, touch of lemon, all of the things. And it was, it was honestly, it was, it was like theatre. And it was like, oh my god, I'm cooking on the fish and me at Royal Hospital Road at this level. And Gordon would buy. I, I, it was a thing. Gordon would buy the carving knife for the meat. So uh-huh. you didn't have. It was the only. So you had your own knife for everything else, but. He would have two carving knives, razor sharp for carving all the meat. And when you got into sauce section, you could have Evian or Badwa. Wow. So so everyone else in the kitchen, everyone else in the kitchen is like not at that. And you're there just drinking lovely <laughs> ice cold Badwa because you are, you you are on the sauce section. <laughs> it was I like, love that. I love that. That discipline is kind of quite amazing, isn't it? And that that, that kind of you know yeah. picking up little points. Yeah, yeah. And 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 I know you're a you're a massive football fan, you know, like me. There's so much to that that I relate to football. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So you know the old day, you know, like the, the stories you hear of Sir Alex Ferguson and like that mentality is just brilliant. And I suppose one thing I I really want to like sort of get in there that for me was career defining and I've only sort of realized now as you do because the Michelin guide I was there when we were awarded three stars so I'd been there um a year and a half and the restaurant won three Michelin stars to to see Gordon win that and how it all happened and be a part of that but then now when each year when you go to the Michelin awards and before they did the the award ceremony and like you know sort of the last Michelin, three Michelin star for a while was, I think, Alan Ducasse at the Dorchester. And then I don't think there was another three star in the United Kingdom for 10 years. So you think in like sort of the generation of chefs coming through, I thought, cool, there's not a great deal of chefs that will actually sort of experience that kind of feeling oh, of being part yeah. of the brigade of going from two to three, the ultimate accolades, you know, um, in cooking and, and it was, and it was phenomenal. And, you know, and sort of Gordon then threw a party at the first hotel in London that he went to uh-huh. as a commie chef. And I just looked at him and, you know, and you just sort of think, you know, wow, what an achievement. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, Paul, because after that, then you you stayed under Gordon's umbrella, but the end went work with, with Marcus yeah. Waring. But I've, we've got to get on to you. So the big break from kind of going working for somebody else to then making that decision to, to go out on your own how did that come about? So I just, uh, I'd, I'd finished with Marcus at the Barclay. That was kind of the end of my sort of, you know, Gordon Ramsay um, sort of reign working in the restaurants. I was there for six years. Uh, so three years at Royal Hospital Road, three years at Petrus. And I was in the, in when Petrus moved to the Barclay, I got to know this concierge guy. Uh, and he was, he sort of, you, you know, those concierge guys are like Simon. They just know everyone, don't everyone. The proper, proper, like rude boy gangster, you know, <laughs> like just get you what you want, you know, just knew everybody. And he said, look, I've got some friends in Chislehurst in Kent who are opening a restaurant looking for a head chef. I said, I'm interested. So I went down there. Anyway, long story short, um, opened up this restaurant with this family took a couple of lads along with me and, you know, quickly realised that like sort of what they wanted from it and what I wanted from it were completely different. But I didn't want to go back. But at the time I was quite lost. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I took these chefs um, after service one night at this restaurant in Kent and I went and had a meeting with them. I said, listen, lads, thanks for supporting me. But um, I think we just need to kind of call it, call it a day here. We all know it's not working out and stuff. So one of the lads said, look, before we all part ways, um, would it, would it be possible? Because we were, we're a small team. It was me, my girlfriend, a lad called Dave and a lad called Chris. Chris said, can we like just like have a meeting with my dad? And I was like, yeah, if you want. Bit, you know, didn't understand, bit weird. Because fair play to Chris, he was kind of quiet. He, he didn't let on like who his dad was. So we met with his dad and his dad said, um, listen, he said, I used to have some property in Padstow a, a while ago. And I've always had my eye on a, a restaurant down there called Number Six. So literally to the day, the year before, I had gone down to Padstow for the first ever time with my girlfriend on my Yamaha R6 motorbike, which is another story. <laughs> like, like, didn't really figure the journey out that well. Um, so yeah, nine hours on a on a Japanese crux nice. rocket. Well done. Uh, <laughs> with the girlfriend on the back. <laughs> like, so anyway, came down and uh, and sort of so I kind of knew Padstow. 
So uh, he said, look, there's a restaurant down there called Number Six. I was going to buy it for my son um, and sort of like mothball it, let him kind of get some experience and then, you know, let you know open his restaurant. He said, but look, he's really fond of you guys. He wants to work with you. Go down to Padstow, tell me what you think. So I went down there. At this point, I'm a bit wary because I'm a bit like, I'm, I don't feel like I'm going anywhere. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've been on this journey and now all of a sudden it's stopped and I've gone to this restaurant in Kent and I'm like, I, I feel like I don't know what I'm doing and where I'm going. I've lost this kind of like path that I was on. So I asked if I could, if my mum and dad could meet um, Chrissy's dad. So his name is Derek. So he said, so we met up, we came out of the meeting and my dad was like, listen, I really think that this guy is absolutely serious. I know you're a bit worried and you don't know what you what to do next. And you feel like you've been a bit burnt with the, sort of venture in can he said but just as long as you know that this is a 110 percent businessman he was like but i think it's uh i think it's worth a go do you know what? i i love i think there's something that's that's really beautiful on this so you you've now been nine years in london and you've saved your apprenticeship you're at an incredible level i love the fact that still you turn to your mum and dad for yeah advice on that and i think that's i think that's beautiful i think coming back right to the start of what we were talking about about you know the influence of your parents and how hard you work I think that's beautiful. I think that's a really, really, you know, lovely thing. Anyway, I had to pick up on that because I just, it lovely. It made me, no, it made me, it made me tingle. That was beautiful. Okay, so yeah. go on. So your, dad, so your dad said, yeah, you, could, you should do it. Yeah, so, so we do it. So we, uh, so anyway, that was it. Fast forward, we, we moved down here on November the 1st. I drove, I drove down here. So one of the tasks I had, so I went back, lived at home for three months. Derek got the property bought. Moved down here on November the 1st, drove down in a in an old white Skoda van with all me like clobbering <laughs> black bags in their back. So one of the jobs I had been tasked was we needed to get a refuse van because believe it or not, there's no refuge for restaurants in Padstow. Wow. Um, because of the way the town is and that. So you have to you're responsible for getting rid of your own rubbish, depending on your, your, your business. But you know, you know what restaurant waste is uh is like. So that was that was that. So I'd come down to Pasto. We there was a house. We lived all lived in this house together, which was a house that Derek had bought for staff accommodation. Um, painted that, uh, and then on December the tenth, we opened, and and away we went. And I went on my journey of not cooking how I wanted to cook, or just doing what I had been sort of sh- or shown what I'd learned. Yeah. I wrote my first menu. Uh, which I've got up in our office, uh-huh. our first ever menu. This will, this you're going to love this time. So I've moved to Padstow, and one of the dishes I've got on the starter is swordfish ceviche. <laughs> <laughs> love it. That is just brilliant. I mean, I'm on the Cornish coast. So I'm surrounded by the best seafood, and I've got swordfish from Sri Lanka. <laughs> love it. Absolutely love it. <laughs> so that's like, how naive I was. So I wrote, I wrote my menu, and away we went. And moving along, three years, like we did what we did. We made, we made no money. Derek bought it. Whatever we make, we'll split. He, he furnished the restaurant. I split. Me and Molly split up. Dave was a proper Londoner. He was a sous chef. Padstow was just too claustrophobic for him. Too small. He moved back to London. And then it was kind of me and Chris left. Chris kind of just wanted a complete career change. So he went off and studied to be an osteopath and it kind of left me. Um, and Derek was like, look, like if you want to do this, um, he said, like, I'll support you and mentor you and, you know, in how to become a businessman. And he said, but I'll sell the business to you and Emma and, um, and I'll, but I'll support you and make sure that you're, you know, cause I, at this point, Simon, I am clueless to business. <laughs> uh, I don't know about, wage percentages, profit and loss accounts, how to run a business, how to kind of, you know, like the PAYE, all of that. So at this point, Anthony Dimitri had just opened Arbitus. I went up to London to Arbitus, sat there, had had lunch because I had a feeling I was going to get a lot from it. It was a lot of noise around Anthony doing things really different. Now, all of these things now are so normal. Uh Back then, they weren't. Like what, Paul? Well, we... At number six, I was just trying to be so what I thought to be fine dining. Yeah. So I wanted to explain the dish to you within an inch of its life. Okay. You know, I wanted the front of house to give you the ins and outs of the dish. We pour your wine and then I'd take the wine away and put it on a wine station and all of those kind of things. I was, and we were busy when the children were off, but we weren't, we weren't local friendly. We weren't, we were just this high-end restaurant in Padstow. And I didn't understand that I'm not in London no more. I'm in this kind of seaside town. Yeah. So 
went to Anthony's and it blew me away. Like it was just like, you know, there was no amuse or pre-desserts or canapes or anything of that. It was just great, solid cooking. Um, the service was really, really slick, but very, very simple. Everything was stripped back. And I said to Emma, this is what we need to do. Yeah. So we came back. We, in the February, we called it, we changed it to Paul Ainsworth at number six. I was on the pass, plating, cooking, running round and serving it into the, like, into the restaurant because I wanted, I thought, right, if I'm going to be a restaurateur, like, I can't just be a chef. I've got to know how the chip and pin machine works. I've got to know my wine list. I've got to be an expert on wine, but I've got to know my wine list. Yeah. I've got to understand what the customers want. And that was the biggest learning curve for me. And that was how I understood that when I was there and I was like, so here we have the scallops, which we've sauteed with a little bit of curry powder and we've got a beautiful piece of black pudding. And this woman looked around to me, she went, yes, yes, I know. I know. I, I know what I ordered like that. <laughs> yeah. And like, I mean, yeah, she was a bit, she was a bit rude, but I was like, yeah, actually this is too much. And then I was like pouring the wine. I, I was actually pouring the wine and the gent just put his hand over the top of the glass and it sort of made me feel as if like I was trying to just get it all into their glasses yeah, to get yeah, another yeah. bottle of wine out of them. Yeah. So I stripped it all back, tray service, everything. Launched as Paul Ainsworth at number six. Uh, did a menu, five or a course, 13.50 for free courses at lunchtime. And had an a la carte menu in the evenings, which was also available at lunchtime. No tasting menu, nothing. Tories were just coming in. It was the end of the labor era, you know, with Gordon Brown in for that sort of like period. Interest rates plummeted. I had an interest only mortgage in Padstow. We took over the business. Emma was hairdressing, driving 60 miles a day. We lived on her wage. My mortgage went from in the January by the, it was 1200 quid. And by May, it was 206 pound a month. Brilliant. My, I didn't pay myself a salary. I didn't pay myself a thing. All I cared about, the, the joy for me, for being my own boss and having my business was, was that, that I was my own boss. It wasn't about making money. All I wanted to do was pay the suppliers, pay the team. And do you know what? That was it. That, that was as far ahead as I looked. All right. Well, let's, let's leap ahead. When did you get your star? Because we're, we're obviously, I knew we'd run out of time with you. So then this is only the first half. So getting your star and then bring us right up to date with what, what the Ainsworth Empire is looking like right now. So we won the Michelin star in 2012. It was the year that the guide came out in the January, and then Michelin said they were going to change it to the October. So it was two releases. September 27th, 7 o'clock in the morning, I got a phone call from Simon Holston saying, had I seen Twitter? There'd been a leak on Twitter. I looked at it and was like, there in black and white on Twitter, there was a page of the guide saying that number six had a Michelin star. I rang Tom Kerridge, you know me and Tom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I rang Tom, told Tom. Tom was like, Jesus Christ. He was like, well, look, I'll send you the number to Michelin HQ. Give them a ring at nine o'clock. I rang them at nine o'clock. And it was like that this man was made for, whoever I spoke to just made this all part of the story. He was like, good morning, Michelin. I was like, oh, good morning. My name's Paul Ainsworth. I'm calling from a restaurant in Padstow. Uh, I, I've just seen that it um, says that my restaurant number six has won a Michelin star. And he went, does it, young man? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, 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 it does. He was like, um, ah, okay. He said, well, if it's there in black and white, uh, Paul, he said, I'd take that as good as uh, you've won it. And those words. Wow. Emma's next to me on the phone. She just breaks down in tears. I am like staring, goose pimpling, telling you now. My hair's on my arms telling you now. Like, I, I like that. Then the phone went bonkers. I didn't manage to actually, we only used to live up the road from number six. And I don't know, Simon, I walked down the hill that tw September 27th. I walked down. It was weird. There wasn't a soul on the, on the road. Padstow's a, you know, a big place. And uh, that walk to work that morning, I'll never, ever forget. And that day, I've never met Rene Rezepe in my life, but he was a hero. He was a legend. Like Rene Rezepe sending me messages, chefs that I've never, that I've never met yet. You know, I've got lovely messages, flowers, everything. I finally get onto the pass in the evening. I was just longing to send a dish from the pass that now it was, I was going to send that dish across the pass and like, this is now a Michelin star dish. We're now a Michelin star restaurant. And 
I'm out in the pastry and I never forget the pastry chef had done something. I'm a, I am about to go into a bit of a rollicking uh-huh. and all I hear is, oi, oi, like that. And I look around, Tom and Beth. Oh, Tom Kerridge and his wife, Beth. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. As a surprise. And he went, get that apron off. He said, we're taking you for dinner. And they took me and Emma and John Walton, our head chef, who was off that day anyway, for dinner at, um, at, the, at Rick Stein Seafood. Oh, beautiful. I mean, that's, and that's equally, that's a very carriage thing to do, isn't it? You know, yeah. again, rivals you for the loveliest man in the food and drink industry. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, and, and yeah, it was, it was the stuff of dreams. It was phenomenal. Listen, I tell you what, just very briefly, you've got you've got one sentence to fill this. It actually sets it up very well for the for the middle part of uh, of the podcast. Bring us up to date. So what have we got now? So we've got number six, obviously, which continues to go from strength to strength. What else is in the empire? Yeah, so we've got Paul Langston for number six. Uh, then we've got uh, then we had um, Cafe Reggiano. Then after that, Padstow Townhouse, which is our bedrooms. Then uh, Mahe, which is our cookery school and chef's table. Uh, and then the Mariners Public House in Rock. Yeah, and and, and the Mariners. I mean, when, last year you came on Sunday brunch. You cooked some food from there. You cooked the most amazing chicken, which still to this day is one of the best dishes anyone has ever cooked on Sunday brunch. And I still salivate at the mere thought mm-hmm. of it. It's not quite my Gary Rhodes moment, Paul, but certainly in terms of chefs <laughs> on the show, one of the it's greatest close. ones ever. So, so it's brilliant. And, and the thing is, what what is joyous about your story? One is the fact that your attention to detail is great. Your description is great. But the love and passion that you have both historically in the present day and going forward is what makes you what you are. You know, you, you, you couldn't do anything else if you tried. You know, this, no. this, this is you. You know, you, you, are, you are made for hospitality. And, it, you know, and as I say, it, it, it's a joy. It's a joy. Right. Thanks. We're going to change the pace of this. This is where we take you on a, on a very, very different place. Every week, um, we give our chefs a recipe challenge. And what Paul has is 45 seconds to sell me a simple dish that he'd make while entertaining his friends. Now, I think he's going to be good with this because his description has been beautiful so far. He's very poetic. The poet laureate of, kind of, of chefs, undoubtedly. But the, the deal, you know this by now, you've got to cook outdoors on a barbecue. So, Paul, you can have yeah. any cut of meat, fish or veg. You've got to prepare a marinade or a rub. You've got to prepare a sauce and a cold side dish. Now, Nadia and Gok absolutely nailed it. We had Rachel Koo on and she failed miserably by being far too flowery at the start of it. So what you've got to do, Paul, is say, right, the dish is blah, then you have 45 seconds to sell it to me, to, to make me salivate as much as your description of the, uh, of, the, of the Gary Rhodes bread and butter pudding. Are you ready, Mr. Ainsworth? I am ready. I will count you down. Three, two, one, go. Okay, it's everything you can do on a barbecue, right? So we're going to start off with, I want a really, really beautiful burger. Gorgeous, like beautiful aged meat, seasoned beautifully. So you've got that cooking on the barbecue. All the the beautiful fat dripping onto the coals, bouncing back up, salt, pepper, keep it nice and simple. While that's cooking, you now want your bun. So now simply sun-dried tomatoes, touch of marmite, touch of butter, blitz it together. You'll never, ever look back. You will always have this in your fridge. 15 seconds to go. Brush that onto your burger, brush that onto your bun, toast your bun. Then slice the cheese, put a bowl on top so you create like a like an oven. Five seconds. Cheese on there, lettuce, tomato, mayonnaise, mustard, bun, burger. Done. That was good. The Marmite was a fantastic tip. That is brilliant. I actually want that. You did very, very well there, I think. Suffering it, 45 seconds isn't isn't very long. Bear in mind that you can spend four and a half minutes describing your paper round to me, then getting 45 seconds out (laughs) doing this. Was kind of pretty good. Uh, now I'm excited too about this because we're giving away um, a Genesis Two Gas Barbecue and Weber Connect Smart Grilling Hub in yeah. every single episode of Grilling. So Genesis Two is a premium gas barbecue that makes it easy to get great tasting food, and the Smart Grilling Hub is an accessory which connects you to your phone via an app. It guides you step by step through preparing and cooking, even telling you when to flip your food. So Paul's burger, it would tell you exactly when you need to do it and when it's ready to eat. Now to win this fantastic prize, head to 
weber.com forward slash grilling. That's weber.com forward slash grilling, where you can find the terms and conditions and the closing date for entries. And the competition is open to UK residents only. Now, the Weber website, of course, is also the place to find a host of tips for barbecuing in all weathers and seasons and a fantastic range of recipes from bacon wrapped turkey breast with herb stuffing to Dijon and garlic ribeyes smoked with a little bit of thyme. So do you do much barbecue and pull? I do. I love it. I do. I'm going to, you know, you know, at the beginning of this, which no one saw, you know, that beautiful view I showed you from where I'm sat. You do. So when, before we kind of start recording, Paul kind of turned around his kind of his phone so we could see it. So he's got this beautiful view outside. Oh, it's I'm I'm sitting in. Well, it's a nice studio, but, you know, I'm sitting in a claustrophobic studio in the middle of London and Paul's kind of down in Padstow. Yeah, go on, mate. So that beautiful view. So, yeah. So I've been here 15 years and I did something uh, three weeks ago that was like, finally, I was like, Do you know what? I am I am living that Cornish dream. Uh-huh. Picked my little girl up from school. Two days before that, I bought her a wetsuit. And after school, the sun was shining. I took a little mini Weber, you know, like they do a mini one that yeah, goes yeah. in a little nice bag. Took it down, some logs, some um, the big K stuff. And we went for a swim in the sea. And I lit the, the logs, put all the coals on. And then I just popped into the Mariners and picked up some burgers and we just had burgers on the beach and went for a family swim, the three of us. That is beautiful, isn't it? I mean, that that is living the dream. And it's funny, isn't it? Because, you know, obviously where you are, then in my head, then you always imagine anybody that lives in Padso, that's going to be a regular occurrence. Forgetting, of course, the fact that, you know, you have a, you have an empire to run and you're still working <laughs> daft hours like like everybody in our industry is. But what what a lovely thing to do. It was. It was brilliant. So the next part, or sort of the, the, the final-ish part, really, we, we've talked a lot about food and, and the way in which you kind of learn to do stuff. So I think what I've done with everybody else so far, we've talked about how they go about kind of writing recipes. But I think what I'd like to find from you, Paul, is, is almost advice, because your food is magnificent. And you talked very early on the days with Gary Rose about how garnish no longer was garnish. It became all sort of an integral part to any recipe. So if you're going to cook something, let's say, for example, let's, let's go back to your barbecue recipe with the burger. What goes on in your head when you're going to create that, that, that people should maybe think about when, when they're making their own dishes rather than following a recipe? Yeah, absolutely. What I always say to people, Simon, is just think about like layering the dish and think about like seasoning, like quite often as well with home cooking, you know, you don't you don't have to get as intricate as what sort of chefs can get with it. You know, quite often the difference between a, you know, a mediocre dish and a good dish can be quite sim- quite simply a pinch of salt. Let's take that burger. It's in little things like that kind of that sort of sun-dried tomato marmite butter trick that's giving you bags of umami. What you find in anchovies, tomatoes, parmesan, soya sauce, and so on. So rather than just getting your bun and opening up your boring bun, cut your bun in half and toast it, season it a little bit, brush it with that butter. With your burger, you know, there's not, you know, making burgers with the kids is a great thing. You know, don't buy them. If you've got time, get a nice bowl, you know, nice bowl of mitts, choose a, a good quality one that's got a nice bit of fat in there. Don't overcomplicate it, salt, pepper, and some Liam Perrins. Nice. Um, and then mold them together, let them set and just enjoy cooking by being, you know, by being organized. But I suppose to answer your question about like what the thought process, it just simply boils down for always for me is it's, it's flavor. My, my mission is always I've, I've never, ever sort of got too lost in the kind of the whole presentation thing. And I suppose as well, I'm sort of, I look back now, I'm quite proud that I feel like it, number six, I've always been like honing the style. Like you've been through all of the changes in our industry, Simon. Like I never got, I never went down the foraging road. I appreciated the people that did it, but I didn't, I didn't all of a sudden make my food all about foraging. I didn't get lost in the molecular, you know, the molecular stage, the Nordic stage, you know, now there's a huge Japanese kind of thing happening right now, you know, in food. Now we use like seaweed and things because we've got the Cornish seaweed here and we use kind of soy and mirin and stuff, but it's never actually on the menu. It might be like underlying to kind of thing. 
well, actually, these are new techniques. That's a really good idea. That brings amazing flavors. But we then all of a sudden don't make our menu very Japanese looking. Uh-huh. We stay true to ourselves, but we are constantly learning and thinking, oh, that, that works really well. And I suppose 15 years on, you know, like back in the day, Simon, you know, trying to get a new dish together was like either at the end of the night at two o'clock in the morning yeah, yeah. or like halfway through the day. It was, a, it was a nightmare. And if I wasn't happy with it, I'd take it off the menu and that. Whereas now we've got a proper development area to develop the dishes, talk about them. But the creativity never goes. I can honestly say I'm 41 years old and like, I'm going to pay you a compliment. I, I look at you and I think like, what a repertoire you have. Like, you know, like I, I always have Sunday brunch on like in the background on Sundays and like, you know, we like watching you go on there and each week recipe after recipe after recipe. <laughs> and like, when people say, oh, you know, is there a point when you burn out and that? I'm like, no, because you just, you can't. If you're a creative person, you just kind of, okay, yeah, let, let, let's try this. Let's, you know, let's try that. We've just done a tasting this morning, you know, before I did this at Cafe Reggiano. We had some grilled hispy cabbage with like beautiful roasted nuts Lovely. and chili. We had a, a, a duck, autumn duck cassoulet. And it, you're just like, okay, well, let's, let's just tweak it there. We had a beautiful minestrone soup that we were like talking about what kind of pasta we put in it, change it here and that. And we make it our own. And you just kind of, and as long as it tastes beautiful, for me, mother nature will just by its very nature, will make it look beautiful. What, what's your most exciting season? Which season do you look forward to most? I love summer going into autumn. Okay, yeah. I love soft fruit, the soft fruit season, um, especially if we've had a great season and, you know, you've got some absolutely belting strawberries um, and beautiful kind of soft fruits. Then I love it when we're coming into mushrooms. I love the things like the, you know, the different, wild mushrooms that are kind of coming into um, play now. But also as well, I'd have to say if I had to pick one, my ultimate, I love root veg. I do, yeah. Onion, the the onion is possibly my favourite thing. The things that kind of will do with onions, whether it's like Leonese, like slow cooked, roasted vegetables, you know, like we don't, we don't boil a veg or or anything. All the vegetables are either baked, roasted. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. So you're an incredible mission star chef. So let me just paint a scenario for you, Paul. We've been out. We've had a few scoops, right? What's our little guilty pleasure that we're going to have? You can have it. It's got to be trash food. I want to know what Paul Ainsworth, when you and I have had a few too many, what we have in. What we have in. All right. We are going. I am going to take you. We're 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 pretty gone. We've yeah. had a gr- we've had a cracking night, yeah. <laughs> and me and you are going to KFC. Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna order you a Zinger Tower. But what 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 you you got to be in the know? A Zinger Tower with bacon and cheese add on and an extra hash brown in it. All right, <laughs> and then we're gonna get the KFC gravy. Okay, <laughs> and then once we've had a couple of bites of that burger, there's a nice there's a nice zing with the zinger burger, believe it or not. Right, <laughs> we're then going to dip it in that KFC gravy, and we're just going to be living the dream, having a nice time, and like we're going to be getting that proper dirty, filthy American thin sliced cheese. With, oh man, with that chicken bacon, the bun, loads of mayonnaise. Slightly disturbing that Paul's description of that matched the one of Gary Rhodes bread and butter pudding and a Mark Sargent and a Mark actually kind of opening scallops that's slightly different well it leads us nicely into into sort of the final bit we, we do a little thing every week uh, we ask our chefs to share a place with that sort of specials with them but it can't be a fancy restaurant you know we're looking at kind of it might be a local pub it might be a coffee shop a deli uh, or might be or it might be a little takeaway but it can't be a posh restaurant so Paul what are you gonna I mean it, it's one of those things I've sort of said to everybody on this it's almost like revealing that little hidden secret that you keep for yourself that if you want to sit down have a little hour to yourself but where are you going to take our listeners quite close to home um there is a little pub in padstow called the golden lion Mm -hmm. and the roast dinner there is is it's it's magical it's it's you know everybody says don't they something about their mum's roast their mum's roast is is the the best best in the world right and if your mum isn't available on that Sunday to cook your roast that you love so much. <laughs> Go to the Golden Lion in Padstow. They're so lovely in there. Martin and Sarah, they run a brilliant pub. They've got a fantastic chef there called Alex. And it's just 
it's just beautiful. And then, but my favorite bit is these earthenware dishes come out and they do leeks and cauliflower <laughs> cheese. Oh my goodness me. I, I oh. love that. I love it. Paul, it's always, always joyous to kind of spend time with you, whether it be kind of like, you know, down, down the line or whether it be in person. I think, you know, I think the biggest thing that comes across is your passion for what you do is is beyond compare. Catering and hospitality is your entire life. And like you said, at 41, then you're still absolutely and utterly in love with the business and 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 i adore that i love the stories about the reference points back to your dad that is still so important in your life and it's been an absolute joy having you on my friend and one day because you constantly invite me down and i constantly say i will i will i will i will but you know once you're out of kind of like peak season then i am going to do it because you know i've always always i've still never managed to eat in any of your places and i need to do it well mate there's a table with your name on it and we can't wait to welcome you and thanks for having me. Honestly, this I'm not just mate, it's the best podcast I've ever done. I've, I've loved it. It's been absolutely brilliant. Oh, bless you. Listen, Paul, it's a joy to see you. Lots of love. Love to the family as well, mate. And I'll speak soon. Take care, Simon. Cheers, mate. Thanks so much to Paul for joining me on Grilling. Hopefully Paul's barbecue recipe is giving you food for thought as to what's possible on a Weber grill. Head to Weber.com for plenty more ideas about what you can achieve. Now you might be interested in some of the fish recipes like the smoked trout or halibut with grilled roasted lemon and caper dressing, which is delicious. And if you head to Weber.com forward slash grilling, not only will you find details of the competition, but you'll also be able to get a free barbecue Bible cookbook with the purchase of selected accessories. Well worth a look. Now you can subscribe to Villing on your favourite podcast app and do tell your friends about us if you fancy it. We'll be back next time with, in fact, Paul's best mate and godfather to Paul's children, Tom Kerridge, which should be very lively. Uh, Grilling was brought to you in association with Weber Barbecues and is an off-script production produced by Ben Backhouse and executive producer Zach Brown. I'm Simon Rimmer. Do hope you can join us again. See ya. <laughs>